Okay. All right. Good to see everyone tonight. So we'll begin in Matthew chapter 14, and we should be able to do this whole chapter tonight. Matthew chapter 14. We'll read the chapter and then pray and have our Bible study. It says there in verse 1, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had arrested John, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it uh, because he had given his oath and because of his dinner guest. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about five thousand men who ate, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sing, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. All those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that he might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight, and Lord, for giving to us your precious word. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us tonight, uh, Lord, that we would have greater understanding and clarity of the person and work of Christ, Lord, who he is, that he certainly is indeed the Son of God, 
and that he is the only source of salvation, uh, Lord, by which one can have their sins forgiven. Lord, we pray that we would have, Lord, uh, great faith and that, Lord, you would use our study tonight and our uh, reading of your word, Lord, to build us up in the faith. Lord, we know that we are often um, those who have little faith and we do have our doubts and failings. And Lord, we pray that you forgive us of these and Lord, that you would strengthen us and help us, Lord, to grow and to mature uh, into adulthood so that we, uh, Lord, do your will in those things that are pleasing to you. So Lord, be with us tonight as we study your word and we pray that you help us, Lord, to understand and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so here we have uh, more uh, details concerning the person and work of Christ uh, and you know what he's doing in terms of his ministry. Uh, and you have these miracles that are taking place, both the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on the water. Uh, and these are there primarily for the benefit of his own disciples, right, in order to confirm and to strengthen their faith, but also for the benefit of the crowd as well. But our passage tonight begins with this, uh, recounting of John the Baptist and what happened to John the Baptist and then what Jesus did in response to that uh, as he began to withdraw from that area because of the hostility and the danger that was present because of this wicked king who was Herod. So we'll pick up in verse 1 and let's look at verse 1 to 12 first. It says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So here, Herod has now heard news about Jesus. Jesus has a lot of notoriety, right? He has uh, some popularity in the sense that there is buzz and talk concerning him, right? How could there not be because of the ministry that he's performing, the mighty miracles that he is doing, right? So this uh, fervor and this news has reached to Herod, the Tetrarch. This Herod is the uh, one of the sons of Herod the Great. The Herod the Great is the Herod of Matthew chapter 2. And his empire, his kingdom, whenever he died, was broken up into four different parts. And that's why he's called Herod the Tetrarch, because he was the ruler over one of these four parts of the kingdom of Herod. So, And he is the one that beheaded John the Baptist, and the one also that Jesus will go before during his trial before his crucifixion, from Pilate to Herod and then back to Pilate. So Herod uh, was a man who knew of Jesus, and he also knew of John the Baptist. And it even tells us that he often liked to listen to John the Baptist, right? That he listened to him, he was glad to hear him, but he wasn't repentant, right? He wasn't repentant, he just was curious. He knew that he was uh, a good speaker, that there was a lot going on about him. So he was interested in him, but not for the sake of obedience and not to be a true follower of Christ. Well, when he hears about Jesus and what he's doing, his conclusion is that Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. So that John the Baptist, who he has killed, has risen from the dead, and now he's in the person of Jesus, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him, right? Because he's been raised from the dead. So Herod is a superstitious kind of a man, okay? He's not thinking about the resurrection in the proper sense. Now, certainly we believe in the resurrection, and the Bible teaches us the resurrection, but not like this, right? Not like this, from one person to resurrecting to another, and that this resurrected resurrection has now given him these miraculous powers. Because John the Baptist 
did not perform miracles during his ministry. He was preaching, but he wasn't doing miracles. Jesus is doing miracles, and his conclusion for why Jesus does the miracles is because he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Come back to life. Maybe come back to haunt Herod, you know, for what he did to him. So then in verse 3, For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him, put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Here we find out why it is or what precipitated the execution of John the Baptist, right? What was going on and what happened specifically that prompted him to do this, right? Herod had arrested John. So Herod persecuted John, arrested him, put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip. Herod had an incestuous relationship, an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, right? She was married to his brother, Philip, but then Herod took her and she became his wife. She divorced Philip and became the wife of Herod. And when John saw this, John was preaching against it. He was condemning and preaching against, confronting Herod, saying to him that this is not right. It's not lawful for you to have her as your wife, that this is a sin against God and you need to repent and do what's right in the sight of God, right? Both individually, right? It's not good for anyone to do this type of thing, but especially when it is a ruler, when it is a leader, because the ruler is setting an example for other people. And when they see him behaving like this, then what are the other people going to do? They're going to behave the same way. When the rulers have bad conduct, bad behavior, then they are a bad example for everyone else. And how can he bring about justice and righteousness in the land as the chief ruler of the land, that's his responsibility, is to establish justice and righteousness. How can he do that when he has this type of relationship with his brother's wife? Right? He has no basis, no standing to promote anything that is good and right. But it's just going to lead to more and more evil and more and more wickedness. And so John was preaching against him, confronting him, publicly condemning him for his sin and for what he had done. Now, this sin is both in, again, two regards. First, it is adultery, right? It is adultery for someone to have another man's wife. It is adultery in that sense, according to Exodus chapter 20, right? In the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. So if this was uh, just some random man that he wasn't his brother and he took his wife, he would be committing the sin of adultery. So he is committing that sin. Also, we could say it is theft. Because he has stolen his brother's wife. The wife belongs to the brother. She is his wife. And he has taken that which belongs to another. So he's also guilty of theft. But also, if we go to Leviticus 18, he is also guilty of incest. In that there are relationships that are forbidden. Right? Forbidden relationships from marriage and having uh, relations within that marriage, right? It's not a free-for-all. There are restrictions to who a person can marry and who that they can then have marital relations with. Luke 8, or Leviticus 18, 16 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Then also in chapter 20, chapter 20 and verse 21, 
If there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They will be childless. So there, a man is forbidden from having as a wife his brother's wife. His brother's wife. Whether the brother is still alive, as in this case, or whether the brother has died and then he marries her. Now, the only exception would be in the case of uh, the kinsman redeemer. Whenever there is no child and the brother dies and the other brother is unmarried, then he should take his brother's wife and have children on behalf of his deceased brother. That is the exception to the rule. But generally speaking, commonly, this is not supposed to happen. The brother is not supposed to have his brother's wife. And especially if the brother is still alive, which is the case here. Okay, so he has committed a great flagrant sin against God, right? One that is abhorrent in the sight of God, and it's not good for anyone to see this taking place. And so John is preaching against this sin. Also, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, we remember that in 119 verse 46, there the prophet David One nineteen forty six says, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. Isn't this what John is doing here? He's speaking of God's testimony before the king, to the king's face. And he's not ashamed because he's in the right. Yes, the king does have authority, but not ultimate authority. There is a higher authority than King Herod, and that is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It is the Lord God himself. And God has declared that you can't do this. And John is the messenger of the Lord, who's speaking the word of God and telling the king that this is not right. Also, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. 1 Peter 2, 17 says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Honor the king. Now the point here is that honoring the king cannot mean that we don't have the obligation or the right to preach against their sin. If the king is committing open sin, then we need to address that. We need to speak about that publicly. If we have the audience of the king, we need to tell him. Now many times we're not going to have the audience of the king, But we need to talk about it amongst ourselves, right? Because we don't want to follow their bad behavior. And we need to address those things that are happening and address the evils that are going on in our own land, even when those evils are found in the king, the president, the senator, the congressman, whomever it is that is committing the sin. Even if they are a public official, honoring them doesn't mean that we don't address their sin, right? That's the point. John is not sinning by preaching against Herod's sin. He's not failing to honor the king. Honor the king means honor him in those things that are honorable. When the king is doing what is honorable and right in the sight of God and promoting those laws that are good and just, and even a wicked king will, in some areas, promote what is good and just, then we should honor him and be grateful to God for that. But whenever he's doing that which is contrary to the law, whether that is promoting laws and policies in the land that are evil, or whether he himself 
is committing conduct openly, flagrantly, that is evil, then we should speak against that as well. And when we do that, we're not failing to honor the king or we're not failing to show proper respect to the authorities. This is the way that we have to be. Now, I say that because many times people will say that we have to submit blindly to the government or we have to honor the president blindly and we can't speak about Hillary or Obama, you know, make fun of them like we like to. No way, man. We have to do that whenever they're committing great sins against God. Okay? And that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's saying, it is not lawful for you to have her as your wife. Verse 5, although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. Herod did not like what John was saying. And Herod wanted to, he had the desire to execute John. However, his fear of the people restrained him and kept him from doing what he wanted to do, right? From doing and acting upon his evil impulses because the people regarded John as a prophet, which was true. So in this regard, this fear of the people and fear of what they would do restrains Herod from acting upon his evil, wicked impulses, which is good, right? That he is restrained by this fear of the people so that he's not committing this flagrant crime, right? Because it is horrible to commit adultery and to commit adultery with your brother's wife, but it's even worse to murder a prophet, to murder a prophet of God. And so he's restrained from doing that from fear of the people, though he himself has the desire to do so. Verse 6, But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Here, Herod's birthday came, and they have a celebration for his birthday. And during this celebration, during all the frivolity, probably the drunkenness, the gluttony, everything that's going on here, the daughter of Herodias dances before them, dances before the crowd of people, likely a very seductive, erotic type of dance, okay? Not ballroom dancing, uh, not that, but something that was very pleasing and appealing to the men, right? To the men, these are the types of things that happen in these uh, evil, wicked people, right? That do these types of things, okay? It pleased Herod greatly when he saw this and impromptu, right? Rashly, he spoke up and promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked, right? He speaks up and, and is so ecstatic about what he's seen and how wonderful it was that he rashly says that he will with uh, he will give her whatever she wants and he does this with an oath. Well, she had been prompted by her mother beforehand and during that time to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The mother, Herodias, she is even worse than John, than Herod, right? She is very uh, spiteful. She hates John. She doesn't like what he's been saying, right? And oftentimes you'll see this, that women, yes, women can be very uh, uh, mean, hateful, spiteful, hold a grudge, right? And they'll keep it within themselves. And then they'll work in these subtle ways behind the scenes in order to get what they want. And this is what Herodias has done. She's waited for the opportune time. And now that Herod has put himself out there like that, made this oath, she prompts her daughter 
right in here. This is a horrible thing. A mother leading her daughter to commit even more sins, right? Because they're all partakers and participants in the murder of John the Baptist. Herod is responsible and guilty. Herodias is responsible and guilty. She's the instigator. And then the daughter is responsible and guilty because she goes along with it, right? She doesn't restrain her mother and say, mother, we shouldn't do that. No, she's happy to go along with it as well. So she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, who does this, right? How sick in the mind do you have to be to desire something like this? But this is how depraved these people are, right? These people are, and people do not change, right? This is the way they are today as well. Now, a couple of passages, Proverbs 10, 19. This is a good example of why we should not be hasty with our words. Proverbs 10, 19. Says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his, his lips is wise. Right? When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Now Herod has backed himself into a corner because of his stupidity. He did not restrain his lips. Right? He was not thinking clearly. He's probably drunk as well. And he said this in a rash, hasty way, and now he's on the spot. Now he's on the spot, and either he's going to look like a fool or he's going to have to give her what she wants. And in the case of a man like this, obviously he's not going to look like a fool. Proverbs 20, 25. It says, Proverbs 20, 25, it is a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy, and after the vows to make inquiry. So a trap for a man to rashly Say, in this case, it is holy. But for a man to do something rashly, to say something rashly, and then after he makes the vow, right now he has to come to terms with what he has said. So this is what he has done here. He has put himself in this situation, and now he is backed into a corner. Verse 9 says, Although he was grieved, the king commanded it uh, to be given because of his oaths, and because of his dinner guests. Here, the king was grieved over this, right? It troubled him. It grieved him. Now, this is not godly grief that leads to repentance. This is worldly grief. But he did have a type of grief, and he was in a quandary, right? What should I do in this situation? On the one hand, he doesn't want to put John the Baptist to death because he fears the crowd. But then on the other hand, he doesn't want to look foolish. He made this oath. And now all the dinner guests are there and they're waiting for him to respond. So what's he going to do when he's in this situation in front of everyone and on the spot? And now is he going to do what's right? Or is he going to go along, give them what they want so as to save his own face? And of course, he's going to do what's best for himself, right? For himself, not willing to do what is right and take a stand against evil. Proverbs 29, Proverbs 29 25. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The fear of man brings a snare. Well, isn't that what is happening with Herod? His fear of man, his fear of being mocked and ridiculed, his fear of looking foolish before them, leads him to a snare. Now he's in a trap and it leads him to sin 
against God and to sin against John the Baptist. So what does he do? Verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. So he followed through with it and John the Baptist comes to a violent end, a violent death. Right? No one dreams and longs and says, I hope that I get my head chopped off when I die. Does anyone desire that? Now we all know that inevitably, eventually, we're all going to die, right? But most people desire to have a peaceful death, right? A peaceful death to live out uh, into our old age, to die in a peaceful state, surrounded by your children and your grandchildren, you know, in that kind of a situation. And there are certain times where that does happen. An example would be Genesis 49. Genesis 49, there, the prophet Jacob, this is the type of death that he has. Genesis 49, 28. Forty-nine twenty-eight says, All of these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with a blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bear me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. In old age, in old age, with his children, with his grandchildren, and there he pulls his feet up into his bed. He breathes his last and then he is gathered to his people, right? This is what we desire. And certainly it's not an evil desire to desire to have a long life, right? To desire to have a peaceful death. But also we have to see that it's not a promise. It's not a guarantee that that is how we will end. We never know what the situation may bring. We never know how the circumstances might change. And here, John the Baptist, he had a very miserable death, right? It being imprisoned unjustly and then to have your head chopped off, right? To have to go through that ordeal, this is what he had to endure. And are we better than John the Baptist? Do we deserve better than he did? No. So if it happened to John, then it could happen to us as well. And if that comes, then what do we have to do? We have to be faithful. We have to submit to God, be faithful to the Lord, and do what is right and pleasing in the sight of God. Don't abandon the Lord. Don't forsake the Lord but be faithful to him. And it, remember in John or in Matthew 11, 11, it says of John, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, right? In terms of those born among women, no one greater than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist died prematurely and John the Baptist had a, violent death beheaded right his head walked right off and we're not better than he is so we can pray and hope and desire to have a long life and a peaceful death but and if god grants that then we should be grateful and thankful and praise the lord but if not then we need to be like john bear up under our sufferings do the will of god don't deny our lord and savior jesus christ 
And then if we die this type of way, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, whether you have your head or not, right? It doesn't matter what happened to your body. You're going to go and be with the Lord. And then God will resurrect you. And when he does, he'll put your head back on your body and it'll all work out just fine in the end. Then verse 12, his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. The disciples of John came and they took away his body and they buried it. Now, doesn't this take courage, right? This takes courage because John was just executed as a martyr, persecuted because of what he had been saying about Herod. And now they're coming and asking for his body in order to give him a proper burial. So they're wanting to honor John after his death because they don't want him to be thrown out into the street, to be thrown into the gutter and his body to decay and rot over there for dogs to come and eat it or uh, flies and maggots, all that nasty stuff that happens. No one wants that to happen either, right? They, They want him to have a proper burial, which means they have to have the courage to get up and go and ask for his body. And this is what they did. And it was granted to them. So whether we're the ones having our head chopped off or the ones that aren't, whatever the situation, we cannot be ashamed of the Lord nor of his prisoners, right? His prisoners like John the Baptist. And that's what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Timothy 1, 8 There, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed of him, of the Lord or of the Apostle Paul. It says in 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, which is the word of God, nor be ashamed of the one who is a prisoner because he's preaching the testimony of the Lord. That's why Paul is in prison. And isn't that why John the Baptist was in prison? Because he was preaching the testimony of the Lord concerning the sin of incest and the sin of adultery against the king, which is why he was in prison, why his head was cut off. But his disciples are not ashamed to go and to associate with John the Baptist and to honor him even after his death in whatever way that they can. Isn't that also a sign of their love? Love for the brethren. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do we want to be exposed after our death? No one wants that, right? Everyone wants to have a proper burial. Well, if that's what we want, then that's what we should do. If it's in our power, whatever we can do to others as well. Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, 32 also talks about this. That it's not enough that we suffer ourselves, but we also must associate with those who are suffering and not be ashamed of them. Hebrews 10.32 says, Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession and a lasting one. So there, partly made a public spectacle and partly becoming sharers with those so treated. Right? Right? And they had sympathy on prisoners. And when they sympathized with the prisoners, then they themselves were exposed to the seizure of their property. But they were not ashamed of that. So in this way, then, 
these disciples show themselves to be uh, followers of Christ, true followers of Christ by their love for the brethren and their love for John the Baptist and desire to honor him. And it's similar to what Joseph of Arimathea and what Nicodemus did for Jesus after Jesus's death. They went in and asked for his body so that he could be given a proper burial. Also, they did bury him, right? They didn't cremate him. They right. buried him in the proper way. Okay, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Here, when Jesus heard about John, when he heard about the execution of John, he withdrew from there, right, because of the potential for him to be arrested, and he's not done with his ministry yet. Now, Jesus isn't afraid to die. We know that. And he's not afraid of persecution. But he's also not going to needlessly expose himself to it before the time, right? Before the time. When it's time for him to die, he will willingly go to Jerusalem to the lion's den and there yeah. be executed. But that time had not yet come. And so he withdraws to get away from this area because of Herod and what he did to John and the potential that he might do it to Jesus as well. So he withdraws in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Also to be there with his disciples and by himself because Jesus is a man. And as a man, when someone like John dies, it would cause him to have grief, right? We know that he grieved at the death of Lazarus, but also he would have grieved. This is his own relative and also a great prophet of God and the forerunner of Christ who baptized him. And so when he hears of this, it would also cause him to have grief over what has happened to John the Baptist. Well, he wants to be in a secluded place by himself, but the people hear of it and they followed him on foot from the cities. He's in this secluded place and the people from the cities go out to this area where he is at. And he sees this large crowd of people coming toward him and he has compassion for them and he healed their sick. When he sees them, Coming instead of being put off, to, but instead of being bothered by it, which is you know if you want to be alone, if you want to be in a secluded area, you don't want to be around other people. Yet here these people are coming, but Jesus isn't put off by it. But instead he has compassion for them and is willing to teach them and to minister to them and heal their sick. If we go to Mark chapter six. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. It says there, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Here, the reason he has compassion is because they're like sheep with no shepherd. Meaning, no one is teaching them the Bible correctly. They're not being taught rightly. They don't know up from down. They don't know left from right. They don't know what to believe because their teachers, their shepherds are failing them. The shepherds are not feeding the sheep, but are instead exploiting the sheep and feeding themselves. And when Jesus sees them, he has compassion on them and is uh, willing and ready to teach them the word of God and what the Bible says. 
And this is what he will do here. So he's healing their sick, but also teaching them, teaching them the word of God. Verse 15, when it was evening, the disciples came and said to him, this place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Here, the disciples come to him as it gets late in the evening. And because they're in a desolate place and there's nowhere to purchase food, nowhere to go and get food or whatever they might need, and they've been there all day long, then they want him to dismiss the crowd, send them away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and buy food and get the things that they need so that they don't faint or become famished out here in this desolate place. Then verse 16, but Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Jesus uses this as an opportunity. Now he knows full well what he's going to do at this point. So he doesn't just announce it and say, well, I'm going to do a miracle and feed these people. Instead, he puts it on the disciples. He tells them, you give them something to eat, right? You give them something to eat. Don't send them away, but instead feed them. Now he's doing this in order to bring to their attention the uh, impossibility of them feeding these people so that he can then further confirm to them his own divinity and also a confirmation that God will be with them and that God will provide all their needs in Christ Jesus. That they need to be concerned with doing the will of God. And if God is able to miraculously feed a large crowd like this from such a meager uh, supply of food, then can he not provide all of our needs all the time? Of course he can. And as they go out after the ascension of Christ and they're going into the world, preaching the gospel to every nation, then there's going to be times when they find themselves hungry, when they wonder where they're going to eat. And they'll have this to recall to their mind for the benefit of their faith, to be a reminder to them that Christ fed miraculously this large crowd of people and he can feed them as well, right? He can feed them, he will provide for them, and they need not worry about those things related to their body, but God is able to supply every single need that they have in Christ Jesus. So he's doing it intentionally in order to draw this to their attention, right? In order to make it clear to them so that they see the magnitude of what it is that he is going to do. There's only five loaves and two fish, right? No way that you could feed this large crowd with five loaves and two fish, right? Impossible, we would say, for that to take place. Yet Jesus says, bring those things to me. Then 19, ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the, the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. So here they take the food, Jesus blesses it, and then begins to break it and distribute it, and it is able to feed this entire crowd until they are all satisfied. So it's not just a bite or two, but they were able to eat until satisfaction, meaning until they were full. And then there was also left over 12 full baskets, right? One for each of the disciples, right? Showing to each and every one of them the great supply of God, right? The magnitude and the bounty of the Lord. This is how many there were left. And in total, 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. 
So a huge crowd, right? A huge crowd of people, and they were fed from only the five loaves and two fish. Now, if we go over to Matthew 16, Matthew 16, verses 5 to 12, we'll see here that he is teaching them through this to trust in God, right? To trust in God and not to be consumed with their worldly needs, right? with their worldly needs, but rather to, I mean, there is a place for us to think about and do what is necessary to provide for our bodies, but we should not be consumed with that. It should not be our top priority. Our primary focus should be the kingdom of God, should be the spiritual, and then the physical must be secondary to those things. But oftentimes, isn't it the case that the physical, the temporal, consumes our mind, right? It's on the forefront, and that's all that people think about, especially food, right? Food for their body. They're always thinking about what they're going to eat. But we shouldn't be consumed with food in this way. Matthew 16, verse 5. The disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. So they're talking about it, right? They're talking about bread again. And Jesus said, Watch out and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves to the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large basketfuls you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So here, immediately, quickly after this took place, and then the other miracle with the feeding of the 4,000, they're thinking about bread. They're talking about, we don't have any bread. What are we going to eat, right? What's going to go on here? Jesus then is talking about the leaven, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they think he's talking about bread, right? Because what's on their mind? Food, right? Food is on their mind. It's all that they can think about. And that's why Jesus says to them, why are you thinking about food, right? Why are you consumed with this? Why are you worried about this? Don't you remember what I did when I fed the 5,000, when I fed the 4,000, how much you picked up? Why are you concerned about your bread, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the teaching. I'm talking about the false teaching of these people. And this is what we are prone to do, to be consumed with these things. So Jesus is doing this for their benefit, right? It's, it's for the benefit of the crowd to show his love. They're, they're in a, they have a, a true legitimate need in that they have not eaten and there's nowhere for them to get food. So he's going to meet that true legitimate need, but it's also for the benefit of teaching his disciples, right? So that they learn to trust in the Lord and not to be consumed with what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, right? How they're going to provide for this and for that, that God will provide for them which is the same as Matthew chapter 6, where it says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Right. right? God will provide what we need, and we need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Also, in verse 20, we see that they ate till they were satisfied, and there were 12 baskets left over. That when Christ does this, it's not meager. 
It is not meager rations, but it is an abundance. And we know as well that this feeding of the 5,000, this bread, also is teaching a spiritual lesson, right? That the bread represents Christ himself. And Christ, spiritually, does not feed us meagerly, but feeds us completely, fully, right? So that we are completely satisfied in Christ, and everything we need for life and godliness is found in him. Which is as it says in Psalm 23, that my cup runneth over. This is how God does with his grace and mercy to his people, right? The cup overflows. Then also John chapter 6. John chapter 6, in Matthew and in the other Gospels, it records the event, but it doesn't give a lot of the teaching surrounding it and the aftermath of what happened in relationship to the crowd. John chapter 6, and we'll read a few verses here. Uh, The whole chapter is dealing with this. But John chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. This is the day later, the day after Jesus does this miracle. The people come back, but why are they coming back? They want more food, right? They want more food. He says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the uh, Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we, may, uh, so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our father ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It is not Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So the bread was symbolic to represent Christ, right? Christ, the true and living bread, the spiritual bread that we need that results in salvation. Then also chapter 6, verse 60. After Jesus explains all this to them, they don't like it. 660. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen? And then also verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So the result is they see it and they have the wrong response. They come back, not for the spiritual, but for the physical. And then when Jesus confronts them on that, they walk away. They walk away and they no longer walk with him and they grumble about him and what he's done. Okay, then verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Here, after the miracle... 
he tells the disciples to get into the boat and go ahead of him on the other to the other side of the sea, and then he's going to dismiss the crowds. Now, again, he's doing this intentionally as well, sending the disciples ahead of him for the purpose of this other miracle that's going to happen in the middle of the night, and also after a night of uh, much difficulty for them, right? Much hardship and difficulty where they think that they're going to perish out in the middle of this sea. Then he sends the crowds away. He went up to the mountain by himself to pray, right? He went there to pray, right? Not to sleep, not to rest, though his life is filled with much activity. And we know Jesus, having a body like ours, except without sin, was subject to tiredness, the need to sleep, the need to rest. And though he was so active in what he did, he also was conscientious of the need to pray. And he desired to do that. And that's what he's doing here. He's there on the mountain by himself, offering prayers to God. And then when it was evening, he was there alone. If we go back to John chapter 6. John 6. Another reason as to why he dismissed the crowds and then why he wanted to get away from them and be by himself. John 6, 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intended to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So he's getting away from them because they're wanting to make him king. Right? But what they're... What's in their mind isn't consistent with the word of God. Right? That's the problem. Now, it is true that Jesus is a king, but not in the way that they're thinking. They're wanting an earthly king, but his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And they are, so they are understanding some things that he is the prophet. This is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. They understand that and that he is a king, but their application of it is all wrong. Right, Everything is wrong in what they are doing. So that's why he's dismissing them and then why he is there also by himself. There in verse 24, it says that the boat was a long distance from the land. And in John chapter 6, verse 19, it says when they had rowed about three or four miles. So they're about three or four miles out into the middle of the sea. So this is a great distance too far to swim back to shore, right? It's a very uh, long ways out there and you are out on the open sea. And then when this happens, there is a great storm that comes in and it's battering the ship and the winds are contrary and they're afraid that they're going to die, right? And this is happening throughout the night. Then verse 25, it's the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch would be in between 3 and 6 a.m., right? 3 and 6 a.m., so during the middle of the night. So if he sent them the evening before, then they've been out there all night, all night in the middle of the sea, in the dark, right, which would be terrifying. Well, it would be terrifying, right? It's so dark out there. And then to be in, caught in this storm in a little boat like this. And then on top of that, there's somebody walking on the water, right? There's something that they see walking on the water, and when they see it, they think it's a ghost. 
which I would assume would be the most logical conclusion. I don't know what you would think if you're out there and you see something, someone walking on the water. They think it's a ghost and they're crying out for fear, right? So they're terrified. So we have the darkness. You've got this great storm that's going on. They're out in the middle of it. Also, they would have been exhausted because you're out there all night long fighting against this. And then on top of it all, you see what they perceive is a ghost walking out across the water. Okay, a ghost, a phantom, something like that. But then Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. So there, the word of Christ given to them to comfort them, to assure them that it's not a ghost. It's not something coming to destroy them, but it is Christ himself coming to save them, right? To help them and to deliver them. Then verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now this shows you the magnitude of Peter's faith, right? How great his faith was. Because no one else is doing this. No one else says, tell us to come out there. It's only Peter who does this. If it's you, Lord, tell me to come to you and I'll come out to you. He believes that Christ has the power not only to walk on the water, but if it is his will that Peter himself will be able to walk on the water and come out to Christ. This is how great his faith is in Christ, in his power, his confidence, and his trust in Christ. And the Lord says for him to come. And so what does he do? He gets out and he begins to walk on the water towards Christ. Hebrews chapter 11 Hebrews chapter 11, the whole chapter is commending the faith of the saints in the Old Testament. We'll read verses 32 to 38, because what Peter's doing here would fit in with this, right? Would fit in with this. Hebrews eleven thirty-two. what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So here you have both the sufferings in the later part, but also the mighty deeds in the earlier part of that passage a summary of some of the mighty deeds that were done through men that they saw happen, that they experienced in their own life by their faith. Well, here we could say, by faith, Peter walked on water, right? By faith, he was able to walk on water. And this is what he did. Then verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Here, 
we see the the humanity of Peter. We see his frailty. We see his flesh, right? His flesh. He is a spiritual man. He is a true believer. He has a new heart, but he also still has the flesh and the old man. And we know that there is a continual battle between the new man and the old man, right? The new man is the one that said, Lord, tell me to come to you and I'll come to you. If it's you, tell me to come and I'll come to you and has the faith to step out of the boat and begin to walk to Christ. But then the old man is the one who has doubts, who has fear. And when he begins to see the wind, he becomes frightened and then he begins to sink there. So there is this mixture then of faith and doubt, right? Faith from the spirit, right? This is from the new man. And doubt comes from the flesh, or unbelief comes from the flesh, and this is from the old man. And this is how it is for the believer. It's They facilitate between the two, right? Acts of faith, and then there are times of unbelief as well. And this is what happened with Peter here. Now, many times Peter, people like to really mock Peter, right? Make fun of Peter, talk about, oh, look at him, He's, he has such little faith, he's He's out there and he's uh, sinking in the water. He doesn't have faith uh, to make it very far. But he is one of two people in the history of the world to walk on water. Right? One of two people to ever walk on the water. Peter is one of them. So all the naysayers and critics, have they ever done that? No, they haven't. And yes, he did have unbelief. And Jesus does confront that and say, you have little faith, but at least he had enough faith to get out there. And to do it, which is more than most people have. So, yes, his faith was weak. He had little faith. He started and did well at the beginning. And then he had his failing. But this is the way of the Christian life. This is the way of the Christian life. And this is taught by way of doctrine in Romans chapter 7. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. When I want to act in faith, doubt and unbelief is close at hand. Right? It's right there all the time, and we have to fight against it. Right, We have to fight against it. Romans seven fourteen. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So he wants to do good. Evil lies close at hand. The good I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. He wants to have faith. He wants to do that, but then he does the thing he doesn't want to do, which is have unbelief, right? To have these kinds of doubts. A different law in my members, the members of my body. In this case, it's his eyes. That's the member that causes him to fail. 
because he sees with his eyes the wind, the waves, the treachery of the sea. And instead of walking by faith, he's now walking by what he sees. And it is that member that wages war against the law of his mind and makes him captive to the law of sin that dwells in his members. And this is why then he begins to sink, right? He had faith and then doubt and unbelief came. And so in this way, he is temporarily, he's double-minded, double-minded man, right? He's doing one and then going back to the other. Now that's temporarily. He's not habitually like this, right? He's not doing that all, he's not practicing that. But in this moment, temporarily, his faith is overcome with unbelief and with doubt. But notice here that Christ will not let his faith fail. Right, Christ will not lose any of his own. And yes, we are unfaithful, but Christ is always faithful, right? And he will not let us fail. Even our own sin will not be able to overcome us, right? Christ will overcome everything. And here, Christ lifts him out of the water. He doesn't overlook his sin. He talks about it. He says, why do you have little faith? You of little faith, right, is what he says. But he does help him. He does help him and he does save him. Then it says in 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. Now Peter and Jesus get into the boat. And when they do, the wind and the storm immediately stop. And then the other disciples, their conclusion is you are certainly God's son. Not that they didn't believe this before. They already knew this to be true, but now they have another confirmation, another manifestation of the divinity of Christ, that he is the Son of God, that even the wind and the waves obey him whenever he tells them to stop and to quit doing what they're doing. And they worship God as a result, which reminds me of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, we remember there that the sailors who threw Jonah over sea, uh, over the sea, um, into the sea, over the uh, board the boat, that they also, after that happened, um, they worshiped God as a result. Jonah chapter 1, 15 and 16 says, They picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They worshiped God as a result of seeing this miracle of God. This, the wind stopped whenever Jonah was thrown overboard and it led them to worship God. That's the same as the disciples here. Okay, then verse 34. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that he might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were cured. Now they're in this land of the Gennesaret which is an area in Galilee, which would have been in the tribe, uh, when they had their tribes, the tribe of Naphtali, okay? And this is a very lush, um, lots of uh, very fertile, fruitful place, okay, is where they are at now. And when the men of that area recognized him and knew who it was, then they notify all the people in the surrounding villages and tell them that Jesus has come to their area. And so they bring to him all who are sick and he's healing them which is very kind of these people, right? To go and tell everyone who has come to their area so that they can come out and see Christ 
and also be healed of their diseases. So much so that all the people had to do was touch him, touch the hem of his cloak, the fringe of his cloak, and then they would be healed. Which is what the, if you remember the Syrophoenician woman, that she came up and believed that if I can just touch him, then I will be healed of my disease. And that's what happened to her. And this is what is happening here as well.